Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode... Do you have to change the moral social code, which is very difficult to do. How about we kissed passionately and my girlfriend gave me the bad drug? That's, that's in the record as one of the more outrageously successful defences. Right, so you clicked on a pod that says how to teach at sport and get away with it. Well, my name is Mike Finch, and as usual, I'm here with Professor Ross Tucker, and we're tackling a subject today which uh, we're not actually advocating people cheat at sport, but what we are saying is that this is the, an investigation about, first of all, what cheating in sport is about, um, how people do cheat and get away with it, and uh, we've got some fun stuff to talk about, but as Ross has just tweeted out on our Twitter feed, uh, there is a very serious message behind this, and it is largely about how people get away with it and, and what people do. And there are lots of many, many stories. And I will tell you that the stories that we're going to touch on today probably just scratch the surface of the stories that are probably out there. So if you have heard a story, tweet us about it, uh, get a hold of us on our um, on our Twitter feed. Our Twitter feed, by the way, is SportsSciPod, at SportsSciPod. So it's sports with an S on the end, then Sci, S-C-I, pod. And a big thank you to all of the people listening to our podcast who have uh, in, engaged with us on very different topics over the last couple of weeks, particularly the one about talent identification, which we did uh, with Ross and then with David Epstein, the uh, New York bestseller of The Range. Um, and we've had lots of interaction about that. And uh, we've got an upcoming pod happening uh, in the next couple of weeks around technology and sport. And uh, Ross tweeted something about that uh, a couple of days ago, and the response has been absolutely amazing. A big thank you to all of those that have complimented us on our podcast. Uh, we are confidence players, Ross and I. So the more you tell us how you love our podcast, um, the better we uh, feel we can do a better job for you. And uh, But we also don't mind a bit of criticism. It's always nice to know that if if we're if we're stepping out of line or we're not getting something right, um, we don't like to hear it, but uh, we don't mind hearing it once in a while because I think it's important that uh, this is a conversation that we're having rather than just uh, a one-way conversation between Ross and I. So a big thank you to everybody for being involved. So don't forget, follow us at SportsSciPod is our podcast handle. And also Ross is on Science of Sport on Twitter and our Mike Finch essay. But uh, get hold of us, get involved, and uh, we can have those conversations. So today we're talking about how to cheat at sport and get away with it. And uh, I think the first thing, Ross, is like, we were talking in the in the build up to this podcast that my first assumption was that people cheat in sport because of the professional era of sport. They want to earn money. They will do anything to earn money. It's about the money game. But you pointed out that cheating is inherent in the human psyche in many ways, isn't it? Yeah, I, uh, cheating is cheating's human nature. Yeah. Um, before I get into it, I want to. If I sound a bit gravelly. Um, or like Marvin the Martian this morning, it's because I've got a bit of a cold. Would you so like apologies. some butamol? I was just going to say that <laughs> before this, I considered, had I been an athlete, I would have taken a massive dose of cortisone and potentially 20 puffs of my salbutamol, pulled a Chris Froome before my interview. Uh, but that would have been cheating because if I'd been that sick that I couldn't get away with it, then I shouldn't be on air. <laughs> um, so cheating, I think, is human nature. I don't think any person can hand on heart 
so that they haven't cheated in some facet of their lives. They've been in a race and they've cut a corner <laughs> or they've cheated at card games or they've gone to a pub quiz and yeah. you just cheat once. And so it's normal human behavior, I think, to try and find shortcuts. I'm sure there's some evolutionary biology theory that cheating probably enabled survival. Yeah. And the person who was honest was the first one who got eaten by a lion or something like that. So I think cheating is normal. We know about cheating because we see it in the professional era and athletes get caught because they're competing for medals and money and sponsorships and glory and fame. But the same levels of cheating, I mean, not the same types of cheating, but the same levels I think happen in the middle of the pack. Yeah. You, you see these guys cheating about age, cheating about their qualifying times to get into better races and so forth. So I think it's a universal human behavior, but when it manifests in a competitive environment, a zero sum environment, my, my win is your loss, um, then obviously it becomes newsworthy. One of the interesting, I mean, just picking up on that slightly, I, 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 working as the editor of Bicycling Magazine here in South Africa, we've got a, a piece, a column from a former professional uh, mountain biker here in South Africa who was writing a piece about um, his life as a professional cyclist and all the riders that he was riding against in his prime have uh, most of them have been, have been bust for doping at some point and what his what his uh, real the sadness of his story was that what could have been if they didn't cheat so it this is this is a serious part of this podcast is that cheating potentially costs people their careers in sport when they're not able when they're not able to compete against the cheaters and as we saw in the last Armstrong year being a prime example of that but it, there is a very serious consequence to people's lives when cheating is done at a serious level at a professional level yeah at the top because there's only one gold medal yeah and even winning a silver instead of a gold be interesting to know how much that's worth to someone over the next six years of their career yeah, yeah. and now i mean you get situations now where we, we, we could even be i saw it the other day i should know the number but i don't so apologies we could even be in the hundreds is the number of cases from 2008 and 12 at the olympics which have been identified retrospectively so at the time of those games they weren't detected but because testing methods and so forth get better they are now identified and then disqualified. But the athletes who were denied those opportunities have lost six years of earning potential. So, yeah, yeah the implications are big. And that's why some people have said that cheating, doping in sports should be treated like fraud and there should be significant financial compensation for those who are wronged by it. Obviously, doping is only one aspect of yeah. cheating and we can explore some of the others. But, yeah, it's a serious topic, but there are some fun stories within it that, that – yeah, so it's a serious There's topic disguised as fun. Yeah. Let's just talk a little bit about how we define cheating. Now, in the build-up to this podcast, Ross and I have obviously had a lot of chats on WhatsApp and messaging and face-to-face uh, -face chats about this. And uh, this is this is an interesting thing because you'll see the, the particular examples that we use over the next hour and a half or so. And kind of we try to define where they fit. So what we define is cheating comes in kind of three phases. It's or three areas. Fraud would be one of them. Cheating is obviously cheating and gamesmanship. Now, let's just maybe we can define those three sections of, of this wider term of cheating. We can try. So this is the philosophy of sport. This is, our this is not anyway. the science. Of, this is philosophy. So if I think cheating without wanting to give you a di dictionary definition, when I think cheating, I think gain an advantage and it must involve some transgression of law, regulation or rules. Gamesmanship gain an advantage, but I don't see it as involving regulation, rule of law. It's more against the spirit of the sport. Yeah. And then fraud, 
seems to me to differ from cheating only in scale. Uh, but but this this is not a good solution. So when I think fraud, I think Bernie Madoff. I think for those in South Africa, I think Steinhoff, financial fraud, that sort of thing. Um, when you're at school or, or taking an exam to get into university and you're sitting next to someone and you peek over at their answer sheet so that you can see what the answer to question three is, that's cheating. Whereas fraud would be breaking into the office the night before the exam and taking photographs of it so that you can prepare exact, that would be fraud. But the, the difference between fraud and cheating for me is minuscule. Is it, is it a case of how deliberate is it? Maybe. Maybe that's the differentiator. I don't cheating know. is I mean, kind of just the moment. Fraud is a more planned execution of something. Maybe. Maybe the length of time you do it, <laughs> the degree to which you do it, the scale. I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, Ben Johnson's a cheat. He yeah. was that's deliberate. It's not yeah. like he accidentally fell on a syringe of stuff. Well, you actually well. asked me that question the other day when you when, when you said to me, when you think of fraud in sport, who's the person you think of? We both thought of the same person, that was Ben Johnson, because there's that famous time cover. And I can't remember what it says on the cover. Does it actually say cheat on the cover of the Time magazine? Something like that. But it is a it literally casts it, it, it it's a much more serious case than just like this guy. It got bust for doping. He was they're calling him a cheat and a fraud in many ways. Yeah, so he was a serious people, case. Yeah, most people I think the Ben Johnson scandal was the start of the era of enlightenment. Yeah. For well, I say most people, I suspect a distinct minority. But those who have their eyes open when they watch sports, I think, can trace their their lost naivety to the Ben Johnson scandal. Maybe you got in later and you can pin it to Festina. Oh, Lance Armstrong was my moment. I mean, or, I you go to, or you go to Lance Armstrong, yeah. or you go to Operation Puerta. Maybe you were disillusioned by Marion Jones. Maybe it was... But again, we, we, we're still always on doping. Eh? And, yeah. And uh, maybe it was maybe it was Bloodgate. Maybe it was when steve smith and cameron brancroft got popped a year ago in cricket for fixing the tampering with the ball i, I don't know yes yeah. there's yeah. so many of these examples because there's a saying which i've seen attributed to various people one was a baseball player saying if you're not cheating you're not trying hard enough yeah. so in this world of elite sport where people are ultra driven ultra competitive and the stakes are so high and you're doing everything you possibly can and the next thing is illegal, many people will take that next step. Yeah. What's interesting in an upcoming podcast, which we're releasing closer to the Rugby World Cup in, in about a month's time, is we interviewed Peter Bills, who's actually the author of a book called The Jersey, all about the All Blacks. And in our conversation, and you can uh, well, give us the heads up when that comes out, but one of the conversations we had with him, we were sort of saying, you know, the All Blacks play quite close to that legal line. And he said to us, uh, they, no, they don't play that close to the legal line, they play way over it. Um, and the the idea was that in professional sport, there is, I hesitate to say this, but there is some, there is some understanding of the professional game doing everything you can to win because that is the professional game. That is the difference between amateur and professional. So in the case of um, gamesmanship, for instance, is there some justification for gamesmanship in the professional space? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Um, but the problem with it is that there's no line. So yeah. that's our first assumption is that you're over the line. When we said to Peter, are they over the line? Well, the problem is who draws the line? Where do you put yeah. it? Um, it's more like a smudge or a transition from dark gray to a lighter gray or vice versa. The idea that there's a, 
single distinct line would mean make life very easy. You're over it, you're not, carry on, yeah. or stop. Um, and that's not the case. So that's where gamesmanship gets tricky. So gamesmanship, sledging, uh, simulation in football, which is a euphemism for basically diving. For me, this is cheating. Yeah. Milking penalties in rugby. I know one rugby player who went to play in England, professional, well-known guy. I won't say who it is or the team. And he got to the team and after the first few weeks, he said, coach, what are our moves from scrums? We haven't worked in practice on any moves. The coach says, we don't have moves from scrums. We win penalties at scrums. Yeah. And so they were gaming the system. Now that's cheating in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. Um, but I think some people philosophically might differ and see it a bit softer than that and say that that's actually, if you are clever enough to gain an advantage, then why not? Yeah. But I think it's sad that but being clever, which is a good thing, yeah, is actually the the cover. It's the it's the sheepskin that disguises the wolf. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, but so, it's professional so, sport. It's hard. So, it soccer is a kind of prime example. I remember having a discussion with a very good soccer mad friend of mine who who I said to him, my my biggest problem with soccer is is this diving and and hysteronics that you see in the penalty area. And it feels like in soccer the game is at a level now where the only way you can actually score a goal is by forcing a penalty or convincing the referee that you, you've got a penalty awarded to you. And, and he was saying, yes, at the top level, the players are so good that it's almost impossible to score a legitimate goal these days. That's why the scores are lower than they have been in the past years because the game is so good. Well, so you've got to force another way to get a penalty. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's probably hyperbole. The, the average goals per game is three and it doesn't come down. Um, it's not impossible to score a goal be, other than from a penalty. But what bothers me, and I'm not alone in this, so even yeah. in response to my tweet, uh, for example, Ian Robber gets in touch. He says, uh, my biggest one is football and diving. And, <laughs> and it you, landed, as we were talking about it, it literally landed on our phones as he was talking about yeah. it. Yeah, and, and you, um, you cheat by getting pundits to agree a slight touch brings a grown man down. I get annoyed when I watch it because I often see a guy in a situation where if he stays on his feet, he looks more likely to score, but he goes down because they almost seem conditioned. Yeah, that you do that, and and I've heard managers and players say, if you feel a touch, you drop. That's cheating. Yeah, and it's frustrating because I sometimes feel like if you'd stayed on your feet, you'd have had a far better chance than the penalty, even though the penalty is a good chance. Yeah, and I think football, and I don't mean to point the finger because we're going to talk about massive scandals in other sports, but football celebrates its cheats. One of my most distasteful sporting memories was watching. Uruguay beat Ghana in the 2010 World Cup in the quarterfinal. I think it was. It was a knockout match. And basically what had happened was right near the end of the game, Luis Suarez finds himself, the infamous Luis Suarez, finds himself on the goal line. The keeper is out of play. He's come for a cross and he's put himself out of the action. And the ball's heading into the goal and Suarez saves it with his hand. So red card, done. Penalty kick. Leaves the field in tears because they're on the precipice of being knocked out. Ghana missed the penalty kick. I, I think the guy puts it into row 17 or something. Um, and it goes to a penalty shootout, which Uruguay then ends up winning. And of course, Suarez, 20 minutes before, is in tears. By the end of the penalty shootout, he's being held aloft by his teammates on their shoulders. This was a blatant display of celebrating cheating. It was just extremely distasteful. Yeah. Um, it's and a lot like hand to, of God, isn't it? It's a similar... Yeah, although at least... It, no, it's not true that most people criticize that but don't criticize Suarez. They do, but but he was a hero for that period. And there's no way that 
that should happen. And it, the, the same thing, if it had been on the other end of the field, Ghana would have done the same thing. Yeah. Your team would have done the same thing had their guy been Luis Suarez. So I'm not pointing the finger at him or Uruguay. I'm saying that that's the culture mm. of, of sport and it's, it's just unpleasant. I Is remember it the that. culture of sport generally or do you think the culture of a sport like soccer where when it all costs, the stakes are super high, <laughs> there's, uh, there's, there's, there's fans that are well, literally – they will do anything to win. I mean, even the fans feel the same way. So maybe that is why, even when they get away with something that is blatant cheating, it's seen as a as a as a victory purely because everybody accepts that you do anything to win. Yeah, the hypocrisy is massive. Um, yeah. Whether it's unique to soccer is a massively loaded question. I I don't know. Um, there is some just taking a step out of sport now, there's a behavioral economist called Dan Arely who's done some really interesting stuff on cheating and why we're dishonest with ourselves. So he goes and he gives a group of people maths problems, 20 maths problems to solve. Not difficult, but he only gives them five minutes or so to do 20 problems, impossible. And he then collects the answers and he says, for every one you'll get right, you get a dollar. He finds that on average people get four in those five minutes. Then he tells them, do the questions, the 20 questions in five minutes, but you don't have to hand your answer sheet in. In fact, tear it up, rip it up, stick it in your pocket and tell me how much you got. So I'm trusting you. Yeah. Turns out now they get seven. So people cheat. But he finds that they, he finds that a lot of people, most people cheat, but only by a small amount. Mm. Why would you go to seven? Why not 11? Because it's too much. And so he basically comes up with this concept that he calls a fudge factor, which is we are balanced or we are held in check by two conflicting desires. The one is that we want to look at ourselves in the mirror and still feel good about ourselves. We don't want to look at ourselves and say, that guy in the mirror is just a rotten cheat. So we cheat a little bit. But yeah. on the other hand, we want to do well. So therefore, we embellish and we add a little bit. So this is the human condition that drives cheating. So I think, I think footballers cheat because they're human in the same way that cyclists cheat because they're human and rugby players look for every advantage because they're human. I don't think that it's unique. What is really interesting is that the social environment drives cheating to be worse or better or, or less. So he really does the same thing. He has a big group of people in a room and he gives them all $20 up front and then they do the math problems. And he says, for everyone you get wrong or you don't get right rather, you're going to give me money back. So if you get four, you keep $4, you give me 16 back. What they did in this one, which was really funny, is they paid an actor to stand up after 30 seconds and say, finished, which is clearly, clearly cheat. It's impossible. You can't get them all. Yeah. But the examiner says, well done, thank you, collect your money or keep your money and you can leave. So now it sends a message to everyone that this guy's cheated. Mm. So he says, do you think that that makes the rest of the group cheat more or less? I would say more. So it depends on what sweatshirt the guy's wearing. Because the way they did this was they tested it at a university in Pittsburgh called Carnegie Mellon. If the guy who cheats, obviously, is wearing a Carnegie Mellon shirt, then the rest of the group will cheat more. If the guy is wearing a University of Pittsburgh shirt, they cheat less. And so his conclusion from this was that when a member of your community, someone from the inner circle cheats, then it creates a social environment that enables and drives cheating. Yeah. So, okay, so now let's think about sport. If you are in a closed sport, and most of them are, they're little bubbles, and you know that there's cheating happening in that sport, you're more likely to do the same thing. 
And that's the that's the big behavioral problem, I think, around things like cycling and football is that mm. as long as there's a critical mass of people who are cheating and it's clear that you can get away with it, then there's no barrier to imitation of cheating. And that just makes it worse and worse and worse and worse. So, so the solution from a behavioral point of view is that you have to change the moral social code, which is very difficult to do. Yeah. I mean, there's it, it, two points to that. I guess, I guess it also speaks to the sort of tribe effect of soccer. So that soccer is that closed. Even within a team, there's all the supporters that kind of feel part of that team because they're mad supporters. But then, as you as mentioned a few moments ago, you know, in soccer you've got the murder with this sort of unspoken rule within the cycling peloton where they they everybody knows it's happening, but nobody should talk about it. And there's great stories of a lot Lance Armstrong basically intimidating riders who did speak out about the murder. And it's a it's a very well known term in cycling, and and everybody accepts that it that it is true. So that you're right, it is this this kind of pack mentality and it's almost impossible to change. Yes, and I know people, there's, there's people who are studying whistleblowers and what does it take yeah. to get someone to actually speak? And the, the barriers to speaking are enormous. Yeah. They really are. And there are a number of examples of this. In, in, in rugby union, um, there was a scandal 10 years ago called Bloodgate. P.S., I hate that every scandal ends in gate. I wish that we could be more creative than to just latch gate onto every single thing. But anyway, this was called Bloodgate. And actually, Sam Beckett got in touch in response to the tweets and he mentioned um a couple sorry, Sam, he mentioned a couple of gates. Slimani Gate was a was a head injury assessment uh scam, and then Bloodgate, which is the one I'm talking about now. What they basically did, Harlequins was playing Leinster in 2009 in a quarterfinal of the big Heineken Cup competition. Ten minutes to go, they're losing 6-5. They've already substituted their fly half, and then the replacement fly half does a hamstring. So they send a substitute on, but they no longer have a kicker. Now, in a close game, you need someone who might be able to kick you the winning points. And so the guy who they'd sent on was a wing called Tom Williams, and they tell him he's coming off for blood. He says, okay, cool. A couple of minutes later, the physio runs on with a blood capsule. And he says, just take this next time you're in contact, make yourself bleed. So this is a little blood capsule that he bought at a joke shop in Clapham, the physio. And so sure enough, the next time that player's in contact, he goes down, he takes this capsule out of his sock and he bites down on it clumsily and he starts bleeding from the mouth, leaves the field. And the reason they did this is because as he's able to leave the field, the team can then bring a temporary replacement back on. And yeah. that replacement happens to be the kicker. So they've... They've solved the problem of no longer having a kicker. But because they did it in such a clumsy, ineffective way, people were immediately suspicious. And players from the opposing team, Leinster, were saying it's fake blood, it's fake blood. So they get followed down the tunnel, uh, the, the player and the medical doctor. And now things are getting hairy because they've been caught out. They get into the change room and he says to the doctor, you've got to cut my lip. So the, the doctor cuts his lip to make it look legitimate. They take pictures and so forth. But there was a big investigation. And in the first round, the player actually got a 12-month ban. Yeah. And he said, he said, hell no, I'm not going to take the fall for this. Like, why must I? How could I? Be, why would I fake it on myself? Obviously, this is more than just me. And so he decided to appeal. So the reason I'm telling you the story is that because when he decided he would appeal, he came under enormous pressure to not go full disclosure. The club leaned on him pretty hard to partially appeal. And do we know this because of a report? 
because of the report, yeah. the the official legal decision from the appeal is available online. It was the ten year anniversary this year, and so there are interviews that re- this listeners can go and find where he talks a little bit more about it. And the players, his own teammates, wanted him to fall on his sword yeah. and take the rap for the team. The team director, the coaches, the the board were basically saying, "Look, if you come out with full disclosure, you could destroy everything." You know, the team will lose sponsors. They could get relegated. They could get expelled for a few years. Think of the damage you'll do. The yeah. doctor and the physio will get struck off. And so there was this tremendous social pressure to stay quiet. And that's what drives the omerta. In the end, to his credit, he decided he was going to come out with everything. And he did. Yeah. And in the end, they got a £259,000 fine. The director of rugby was banned for three years globally. The chairman stepped down. It was a yeah. huge scandal, but it only came out because he was willing to withstand the pressure. And I mean, part of it was that as they were negotiating, and this is his testimony, so believe it or don't, is they said to him, look, if you only go partial, we'll give you a four-year deal. We'll give you extra holidays. We'll pay off your house. That was the kind of thing they were discussing. Sure. So when you now come across cheating, doping, whatever it is, and guys don't talk, just understand that... There's an undercurrent of huge pressure, stigmatization. Don't be the snitch. I mean, I watched television series on Netflix. Snitches get stitches, right? Like that. It's like the worst thing you can do. Yeah. In any in any in environment. Any, in anything. Yeah. And in sports, it's the same. And if you're a young guy and you come out and talk, you're ostracized. Yeah. So the problem was not that you doped. It's not that you cheat. It's that you spoke. And you ostracized from your peers as well. Exa- not just, not exactly. just from people you don't care about. You, it's people you care about. That's the, that's the yeah. key. So th- this is what drives a murder. It's fear. It's uh, social pressure and so forth. So whether sport can get more people to whistleblow is one of its big challenges. And I don't think – look, there are people doing it now. Sue Backhouse in Leeds is one of the leaders. Kelsey Erickson, who's now, I think, back in the States. They're, they're really working hard on this yeah. because – it's going to be one of the imagine how many people know secrets about sport and hardly any of them talk yeah and it's easy for us we always sit and say oh someone would have said something by now no way yeah and as long as you treat people well they don't speak yeah um you see lance's mistake was that he he offended people and he hurt people and he insulted them yeah and eventually the damn wall burst if you're just good to people they won't talk yeah Exactly. I know that working on uh, Runners World and Bicycling, particularly on Bicycling Magazine, that trying to get interviews with people who have been caught for doping is almost impossible. They just won't talk about the wider. And it's always the story we always chase as journalists to say, okay, tell us how you got the stuff, who gave it to you, who else is taking. And they will never, even if they've been caught themselves, they don't want to talk about it beyond just their own responsibility. So it exists even when they're found guilty of something. Let's just talk a little bit about the doping side. I know that we don't want to focus massively on doping, but obviously, when you talk about cheating in sport, doping is pretty much top of the pile. How do athletes, and we talk particularly on the endurance side, but maybe even on the on the sort of strength side, how do people get away with doping? This is, I think this is the big question. When we look at people like Lance Armstrong, there are many examples of this, who spends years and years at the top level of the sport, and people are trying to find him guilty of doping continually. He never fails a drug test, but we find out afterwards he's been doping his whole career. How do they get away with it? One word, and that's complexity. I think most of the time, especially now, I think we've come out of an era where getting away with it was simpler. Yeah. And there are some instances where getting away with doping today is simple. You just don't answer the door. 
if you know that you're going to fail the test, you just avoid the tester. So that's not rocket science. You just hide behind your couch. I mean, can you do that? I mean, I thought you had to be available at certain times. No, because you're given three strikes in a 12-month period, so you can. Yeah. And there have been a couple of high-profile cases of athletes who, who have had their three strikes. In fact, there's a, there's a bit of a rumor going around that there's going to be one imminently. By the time people listen to this, you may know about another one. But you just don't answer the door. You say, I didn't hear the doorbell. Yeah. You run away. I, I mean, was in I've the heard, bath. I've heard all these stories. <laughs> I, I, I didn't hear the doorbell. I've heard stories of guys running away and jumping over a fence to escape because they can't sanction you for, for that, but they could sanction you if it's your third offense. So, but, but back to the point was complexity. There was a period where, and we covered this in our doping podcast, so I'll be very brief. There was a period where the model was really basic. We would test your urine, we would find the drug, we would ban you. Basic. The problem is that the, the, the effect of doping lasts longer than the drug. So they don't use it a week before competition, they use it months before. So they needed a way to test out of competition. That makes it more complicated. The other problem is that you can mask it, you can hide it, you can cover it. So, so as doping practice evolved, anti-doping had to keep up, and initially it didn't. Yeah. Now what you've got is some fairly sophisticated anti-doping tools, like the biological passport for blood doping. But the problem is that it's not, it's not precise enough, it's not sensitive enough to guarantee that what you've measured is doping. So the, the premise of the passport is that there are variables in your blood, your hemoglobin, your hematocrit, your reticulocytes, which are immature blood cells, and those go up or down normally. If you dope, they go up and down a lot more. Yeah. So if I take EPO, or if I remove my blood or put blood back in, now the changes are big. And if a change is too big, it's suspicious. The problem is, who defines too big? Now, there are statistical models that do that, but altitude confounds it. Dehydration confounds it. Certain medical conditions might confound it. Yeah. You can hide the effect of A by doing B. So you can actually combine doping methods to make it look more normal than it otherwise would have been. So, so it becomes increasingly complicated, and the anti-doping tools are not able to filter and sift through that complexity. So when, when a guy wants to nowadays dope, all he has to do is layer enough doubt due to complexity to get away with it. And that's, that's for EPO and altitude and so forth. He can say, well, I went to altitude, I did a really intense training block, then I came down. You prove to me that my doing that isn't the cause as opposed to EPO. And they can't. That's interesting because I honestly thought that when, when it comes to dope, particularly in the endurance side and the cycling side, that, that the, the passport was, was working. I mean, it is working to some extent, but what you're saying is there are still lots of gaps for it to be yeah, so manipulated. The passport is working as a blunt tool that identifies suspicious behavior. Unless you are doping so badly, so in such an extreme manner, that your passport jumps out at someone. So the way that it works is that there's a statistical model that flags any change. So for example, if your red blood cell count increases excessively relative to the statistical prediction, a computer basically identifies it. It's not yeah. like some guy looks at it and he says, oh, that's impossible. People look at it afterwards and they say, how can we explain this change other than doping? If we can't, it's doping. But that happens very rarely. It's happening... Yeah. It's happening out of Kenya. There's a couple of Colombian cases and so forth. But I went to a conference last year in, in Rome on the passport, and one of the experts said that their biggest frustration is they look at these profiles 
and they can see that there's something not normal, but they're so complex that they can't explain what it is. So the passport is working as a blunt tool that identifies something suspicious, but it's not sharp enough to nail it down, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. Then, of course, you get other types because we don't want to get stuck on EPO. Just think of the Chris Froome thing. He had, he had record levels of salbutamol in his urine. Slam dunk. No. Because he was able to show or convince WADA that his levels of salbutamol were the result of normal salbutamol use, but something went wrong between his mouth and the urine. <laughs> in other words, the theory is that if you take too much, too much appears in the urine. But that's pharmacokinetics. So it depends on the timing. Just explain what pharmacokinetics is. Pharmacokinetics <laughs> is how the body metabolizes and processes the drug. Right. So you take a given dose, let's say a teaspoon of something. <laughs> That's not a you ingest salbutamol, but let's for arguments yeah. for simplicity's sake. That thing then has to get from your mouth, through your system, into your body, is broken down, is converted into other things, metabolites, and eventually a portion of it is excreted. Yeah. But there are half a dozen things on its journey that could change how much comes out. Yeah. So Froome's argument is it's the last part of a grand tour. The stress of cycling for four or five hours a day, the dehydration the timing of my dose, the size of my dose. And eventually they came up with a, a, a computer model simulation using dogs, along with a few other things, uh, expert testimony and a few papers that were able to cast enough doubt that despite having record levels, he gets away with it. Yeah. So, so this is where the complexity comes in. If you, if you want to create a compelling anti-doping excuse, you just have to give enough complex plausible alternatives yeah. and people throw these alternatives out all the time and some of them well, are let's, ridiculous let's, some let's of them talk are about outrageous the, the implausible ones there are some goodies i had a vanishing twin <laughs> tyler hamilton T tyler hamilton <laughs> uh so i was reading up on that i didn't realize until i read up on this that that wasn't actually his idea what happened there was a molecular biologist from mit in boston saw i guess a news article and he said hang on because what happened there with, with Hamilton is that identified a, a second blood type in his blood. So not, obviously you've got your blood. So he had somebody else's blood. That was the anti-doping. Yeah, well, yes, yes, exactly. And this, this molecular biologist said, actually, actually, that can happen if you had a vanishing twin. So this is a chimeric twin where you're actually conceived as one of two in the womb, but the other one gets absorbed. <laughs> Don't ask, it sounds sci-fi. Uh, the other one gets absorbed and eventually you're only born as one. But because of the absorption of that other twin, you have someone else's blood in your body. And they contacted Tyler Hamilton. They said, well, let's put this out there. Because at the point where an athlete gets con or accused of doping, all they're trying to do is throw doubt. It's yeah. smoke and mirrors. Yeah. If I can find enough smoke, maybe I can convince someone that I'm not guilty. So Hamilton said, yeah, let's go for it. And, uh, and in the end, that became a good joke. I remember like four well, years did he, did he get away with it? No, 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 they didn't. Why? They, because the, the authorities, because eventually you have a court case and you have to convince those authorities, I guess, a panel of judges, arbitrators, that your explanation for your positive test has some degree of plausibility. And they concluded, and I remember reading this, they concluded that it was utterly implausible that that was the, the explanation for his his positive so the test. lesson from this is the 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 uh, invisible twin is not a good way to get away with doping unless you've got a record you have got from one. the day of your birth yeah. that I don't know if they can find this so, so I don't even 
I've probably, abs- I'm not an embryologist, so I might have absolutely butchered how this happens, but but it's yeah. not. Yeah. Um, so, so I was going to say that the if if you if you go there, the burden you must people must remember the burden of proof or the liability lies with the athlete. The athlete has to offer a plausible alternative. If they can't, they're guilty. Strict liability is what it's called. Yeah. So if I ingest a supplement. Uh, which contains a banned substance, and I'm going to claim inadvertent doping or beef, contador, clenbuterol. Yeah, I was going to move on to that. Right one, now, yeah. right now, there's a case of a long jumper called Jarian Lawson who's making the same case, a Japanese steakhouse in Arkansas, and he's claiming that his his test for trenbolone, I think it's called, was the result of contaminated beef. Was that testosterone? It's a it's an anabolic steroid like similar to yeah. Right. Um, if he can't if he can't provide compelling evidence even though that's that's plausible he's going to be guilty so so that's where the that's what that's the bar the athlete has to clear and so hamilton in hamilton's case they just felt it was utterly utterly implausible so it was too outrageous for it to even be the, i mean the constable case i can't remember now what what actually happened was he actually yeah he got two years yeah. uh, much of it was retrospective but he lost two titles a giro and a tour that's if right, i'm not yeah. mistaken so so he didn't that. get away with it mm-hmm. uh other athletes have. A.G. Wilson, who's an 800-meter runner, failed for Zeranol or Zeranobol or something. Sorry again. Um, and she was able to convince them that it was contaminated meat. Yeah. She's she's likely, in the absence of Castasomania, to win gold at the 800 this year. So don't go to a restaurant where the, where the beef is free-range because you can't use that as an excuse. Well, you say <laughs> that, but WADA actually warned athletes. Yeah. In 20, I think in 2011... An official statement came out from the anti-doping agency saying there is beef from Mexico and China, which we have identified is highly likely to be contaminated by clenbuterol. Okay. Um, so don't eat it. They basically told athletes, if you do that from this day forward, you are still liable, even if it is accidental. So this happens. Um, in the US, this Jarian Lawson, the drug that he is tested positive for or a metabolite of it is banned in Europe. Yeah. But not in the USA. So his his excuse is plausible, but can he can he produce enough to convince a panel? That's that's the question. So that's so he's got a more plausible excuse than some. I mean, the the, the Tyler Hamilton one was right up there. Uh, how about if we if we go into the next one? How about we kissed passionately, and my girlfriend gave me the banned drug through well, kissing. You, all right. Well, tell us a little bit about that one because that is it is a nice juicy one for want of a better word. So Gil Roberts, 400-meter athlete from the U.S., has won an Olympic gold in the relay, goes on holiday to India with a girlfriend and family, and she develops a sinus infection. She gets an antibiotic from a local doctor, which happens to also contain a banned substance called probenicid, which is a masking agent. So that's why it's on the banned list, because it can hide other drugs. Same drug, incidentally, that Daryl Impey got caught for, and you might recall his excuse was also pretty unique. (laughs) <laughs> yes, he was contaminated by a pharmacist, pharmacist yeah. because he was preparing his own supplements yeah. and he had previously handled probenicid. So anyway, back to Robert, so his girlfriend takes this and apparently they spent a lot of time just after she would take this drug kissing passionately. And she testifies at the court case. Um, he gets cleared by an arbitration panel in the States based on her testimony that um, she didn't want to swallow the pill whole so she would empty its contents onto her tongue. So therefore, her tongue is a high concentration of this drug. And because they kissed so often after she took it, it found its way into his system and therefore 
he fails the test. Did they do a baseline test with other couples? <laughs> so I don't. That sounds like an obvious thing to do. I mean, it's a crazy thing to do, but how do you test whether that can happen? I, I doubt they did. What they did, what they did there to convince the panel was they provided receipts, pharmacy receipts. They provided their passports with stamps, so they could build a timeline of exactly how this went, according to them. And then obviously her testimony um, supported his contention. And no. so he's cleared by this arbitration association in the States. WADA appeals it, but CAS up upholds the initial decision. So he, he was, as a consequence, cleared of that. So that's, that's in the record as one of the more outrageously successful defenses. Yeah, Similar to because it is plausible at the end of the day. I mean, you talk a lot about how you, how you do cheat and get away with it because it's, it has to be a plausible excuse, and some of those are not plausible, but that one seems at the face yeah. of it. It's impossible, but actually... There is some biochemistry in there that actually does work, right? And and so the the um, the regulators had called Gil Roberts reckless and at fault, even had it been inadvertent. So in other words, he should have known not to kiss his girlfriend. <laughs> so this is where we get to. And then his response is one of the great quotes. I'm like, how can I be negligent for kissing my girl? Yeah, and he got away with it. So uh, same thing as Gasquet, Richard Gasquet, the tennis player. Many will know cocaine uh, positive many years ago. Uh, claimed that he'd kissed a woman called Pamela at a nightclub in Miami. He was initially banned, and then on appeal, his ban was overturned. So he also, so he and Roberts are in record as the two who got away with, with kissing as a defense. <laughs> um, another one, Fatima Evelaine, I don't know if I pronounced that surname correctly, French runner, 42 years old, half marathon in France, fails a test for EPO. She says, there had been a torrential downpour just before the race, and so the water was running across the road, and it must have run across a medical wasteland. And as she ran through these puddles, she was obviously splashing EPO from the water up onto her shorts. How unlucky. And as a result of that, EPO on her shorts, she fails a urine test for EPO. That was her, that, in fact, it, that's probably the most outrageous well, excuse I was going to say, how plausible is that? Well, Not I mean, even if... Even if we're sitting here drinking coffee, even if you spilled your coffee on your jeans, you still wouldn't have coffee in your urine sample. No. So, yeah. so I mean, unless no. you peed through your jeans. Exactly. Yeah. Filter I mean, a few years ago, I remember Alana Mayer, um, South Africa's great half marathon and 10,000 meter runner. Um, I think she got uh, uh, tested positive for caffeine um, because she'd, and, and her reasoning was she'd traveled to, I think, to Tokyo and she'd been dehydrated from the flight and she wanted to st uh, like stay awake. So she was drinking loads of caffeine. Um, and that's one of those things where caffeine is not on the ban list anymore. But back then it was. And there was, yeah, they, I remember Alana being really upset about that because she felt that it was a legitimate excuse. She really wasn't trying to use caffeine to dope. Yeah, and a lot of athletes have been caught or were caught for caffeine. Part of the reason they took it off, I think, is they realized that whatever benefit might exist just wasn't worth the trouble of all these cases that were being blamed on inadvertent use. Yeah, And I suspect, actually, as a smaller side, that in the future that's probably where this goes with these contaminated beef cases and so forth is if the concentration that's found in the person, and, and I'm not saying this originally, this is a proposal by US anti-doping and a few others, is that they are saying, why are we fighting these battles for these trivial, potentially trivial offenses? Um, and they're saying that if the concentration that's measured is so low, let's assume that it's contamination and give the athlete a six-month ban, 
or potentially actually nothing as long as that athlete's got a plausible story behind the behind the doping because they they certainly have cluttered the cheating landscape with all these meaningless ones and there's a quote by an agent in this article i read yesterday saying that anti-doping authorities love this because it creates the veneer that they're doing something yeah meanwhile the guys who are getting away with the heavy artillery the epo the testosterone the growth hormone the cortisone they're sailing off no problems and it's the people who are getting done for supplements and food contamination and i agree i agree with that i think they need to fix up that doping system to stop wasting so much time and doing so much reputational damage when it's actually not that big a deal still to come the further removed you are from the money the easier it is to cheat you're stalling for time so is that gamesmanship i don't know it's just extremely distasteful there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss that's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss Right, so let's move on uh, beyond the doping scale. And now obviously there's many, many stories about cheating in sport. But one of the most interesting and one of the most famous is the story of Rosie Ruiz, the marathon runner. Um, and she's, she's almost mythical in the way that she uh, cheated the system. Yeah, she's the most famous because she, wa- she wins one of the biggest marathons in the world, Boston. Um, she died probably about a month ago now. So her name was in the news. Otherwise, potentially, we, she wouldn't have even come up in this discussion. But she basically wins the Boston Marathon, having run only the last 800 meters or so of that race. <laughs> um, and you can, listeners must go on YouTube and find clips of her because when you watch her coming across the line, you think she runs two hours 31 and some change, which, I mean, back then was quick. It's, yeah. I think it was an American record at the time, having never featured in the entire race because she wasn't on the course. And she's not sweating. She doesn't look like she's working. She doesn't even move like a runner. You know, there's a there's a certain yeah. movement that you see, and you say that's that person can run. You looked at her, and you said that that's what am I watching here? Yeah. And uh, subsequently, it emerges that she doesn't know anything about running. Apparently, on the podium, um, the men's winner asks her about interval training. She says, "What's that?" Yeah. Um, so eight days later, she gets disqualified and disgraced and so forth. She ended up spending time in jail for other crimes. May have been fraud, actually. I'm not entirely sure. So she obviously had this personality. There might have been something not not quite right. It emerged that she cheated also in New York um, before that, uh, jumping ahead in the course. I would say that unless you're running in a race that's not televised, that method of cheating today is impossible. Yeah, especially nowadays. I mean, yeah. I, I, this is one of the things I do for the site is I sit there and every 5K I post the splits, who's in the pack, who's not in yeah. the pack impossible to get away with that kind of cheating unless you're really clever or you try and do something extremely innovative and i know you have <laughs> you have a great story from here in south africa yeah. about 
about the one that ne- they nearly got away yeah. with it if it wasn't for one small mistake. Yeah, 1999, the Comrades Marathon, which is the ultra-distance race from Durban to Peter Maritzburg, 90 kilometers. And for those of you listening in South Africa, you'll know the story fairly well. But uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Sergio Motsaneng who crossed the line, I think, inside the top thing. I think he was actually 10th. Um, and a couple of times the guys in the top 10 said, we didn't see this guy on the course at all. And it was there were some questions as to where he'd come from. Um, and there was certainly a lot of questions asked, and uh, but nobody could prove that anything was wrong. And if anything was wrong, how? Um, and then a journalist working for a newspaper here um, looked at two photographs of this Sergio Motsaneng and realized that um, in the two photographs, in the first half and the second half, he was wearing two different kinds of watches. The watches actually were a different color. Um, and that's how they found out that he had a twin brother. And what they'd done is they literally exchanged in the toilet. So he'd gone to the what the one brother, Fika, had gone to the loo um, at halfway and his brother was waiting in the loo and then he'd left and they'd run out. But they looked exactly the same. And the only thing that caught them out was the fact that they were wearing different colored watches. Um, and I think even later on in the race, and I don't think it was ever really proven, but I think they changed again in the second half Um as they were going into the last 30K so they could do it. And the, the irony was that he dedicated his medal to his local community but took the prize money. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a classic example and and, and so close so, to getting away with it. Did um, did they use chips, timing chips at that time? I don't think so. I think that this is 1999, so I, I think that was before. But I, I, I think maybe they did, actually. I think that was in the day of championships. So, so they would have had to swap yes, shoes. So I think they actually swapped the, um, the chip. Or the shoes, yeah. but they just put the chip on the shoes, which is fairly easy to do, really. Yeah, that's so, that's that's twenty seconds yeah. worth, which yeah. is yeah, certainly which is, worth it if it saves yeah. you running an extra forty. Yeah, but I mean, they really—if it wasn't for a very observant journalist, um, they they would have got away with that mm. because the officials certainly. In fact, when people raised the issue, um, one of the runners, Nick Bester, who was a former winner of the Comrades Marathon, he was the one that raised the question mark, and everybody just accused him of being jealous of the guy, and you know, how could he dispute this? Uh, but he was right. So, yeah, great story. So interesting. So I reckon that type of cheating happens a lot in non-televised races. So, for yeah. instance, to get into the aforementioned Boston Marathon, the qualifying standards are pretty stringent. And I reckon there's a lot of age grade, age group cheating there to get under the target so that you can go and run Boston. And and I've seen a few stories. I'm not going to go into those right now. From There's a website called Let's Run. And these guys. Yeah, great if, website. If you... If you try and cheat and you get called out on Let's Run, you might as well confess because <laughs> they will find evidence. It's unbelievable how when you you crowdsource this kind of thing, they will literally go and find photographs from the race route and call you out because you were here at this time and it means you had to have run a world record to get to the next point in yeah. that time and so forth. So, so now you've got a great story here. Rob from Young, Let's Run. You were very involved in this story. Yeah. So tell us a bit about Rob Young. So one of the, one of the famous Let's Run uh, exposés was of – an ultra-distance runner called Rob Young, UK-based, but was trying to break the Trans-America record. This is where you run from the West Coast to the East Coast and as fast as you can. And he was posting every day where he was and inviting people to come and run with him. And so one night, a guy called Asher Dalmott decides he's going to go out. This is the middle of the night, but he says, why not? You know, this guy's doing something cool. I'm going to run a portion of this with him. He goes out to where Rob Young should be because there's a live tracker in place to show you where he is. And he says he goes and he's standing on the side of the road and he sees the camper van come by, but he sees no Rob Young. So he says, this is a bit odd. And I, I, this was a couple of years back now, so I forget all the details. 
But eventually he gets in his car and he starts following this camper van and eventually it, it drives away, speeds away from him as though it's being chased. So he posts the story on Let's Run and now an army of people is mobilized. <laughs> and so they start going into the details because Rob Young up to that point had been posting on Facebook. There are pictures, there are records and so forth. And they find a handful of other inconsistencies. Days where his camper van broke down in some soft sand, but he manages to make it to the next rest stop within six hours having traversed this unbelievably brutal mountain range and so they say this is not not on rob young was being sponsored by skins yeah. and jamie fuller who's the ceo of skins has really positioned himself and he's a massive spokesman for integrity in sport he's very critical of the dishonesty and the cheating in sport so this is a concern for him that one of his sponsored guys has been accused now of cheating so he contacts me and Roger Pielka, who's based up in Colorado, and he says, will we be able to use data to show that Rob Young is cheating? We say, it depends what you've got. He says, if I can give you the record from his TomTom watch, would you be able to look at it? We say, worth a shot. So we, we get the two watches, and in the end, it's really basic. It took one hour, and we knew he was cheating. Writing the story was obviously a bit longer, but... Mm. We looked at the TomTom Tom record, how far he'd run and so forth, all the different files. And the thing about the TomTom Tom is it's got a cadence counter, so it tells you how many steps he's taken. And uh, turns out that he's covered eight miles in one run, having taken 50 steps. Okay, so you're basically, quite a long you're basically coming 60 meters per step. It's not that his speed is artificially high. It's not like he's covered the eight miles in, in eight minutes, gone yeah. 60 miles an hour. Then it's obvious. So what has he done? He's either, he's either traveled. And, and what we found, I mean, it was, it, people can find this online, by the way, is we looked at records during the night and records during the day. There were no suspicious records at the daytime. They only happened at night. And then once the Asher Dalmot post on Let's Run happens, it doesn't happen again. So he changed his behavior day versus night. He changed his behavior once he'd been called out and so forth. So what he's done is he's either traveled in the camper van at running speeds or we think he's gotten out of the camper van and hopped on the back of it, unbeknown to the people driving it. Because we interviewed everyone. We interviewed all the people involved. We interviewed Rob Young. We got access to his Facebook page so we could see if there was anything in his private messages that revealed this. Sure. And so he, he has either cheated with the cooperation of his driver and traveled in the van but forgot to take the watch or to bounce the watch up and down, or he's climbed on the back of the van, unknown to them, and they've driven thinking he's running while he's actually hitching a yeah. ride. He needs so, a twin brother, actually. That would have that, that would have helped a lot. Yeah, I'm still I still think two of them might not have broken that record. But yeah, so we ended up publishing this report pretty much saying unequivocally that he had attempted to gain an well, to cheat. Yeah, uh, I think he still denies it to this day. But the report is there, and I mean, you can't argue with the data. It was, it was, it was crazy. I mean, it was, yeah, yeah. One of the interesting um, discussions we have we're having today is literally about what this idea behind gamesmanship versus cheating versus fraud. And one of, one of the issues I like to discuss is old with Alexander Vinokurov, the uh, the um, Kazakhstan rider, who a few years ago he was um, in a break in the Liege Boston Liege, which is one of the classic races in Europe and uh, along with another rider and the story was that he essentially promised the rider that he was riding with that he would um, give him a share of the prize money if he let him win. Um, it was proven that he 
he did actually do that. Um, and the riders claimed, well, why didn't, why, what's the issue? Because he knew you couldn't win anyway, so you may as well get some money out of it. Where does that sit in terms of fraud versus cheating? In cycling, it's kind of a, a kind of a bit of a gray area because cyclists often collude, teams work together, um, riders work together against other teams, even people from the same country and different teams work together sometimes in, in breakaways and that sort of thing. So it's quite a complicated space to say whether that is, where does that sit on the cheating scale? When here, so, so common scenario in cycling that's actually celebrated and, and normalized is two guys in a break. One of them is about to inherit the yellow jersey uh, and the other one is not. The guy who's about to get the yellow jersey will let the other one win the stage. So you have the stage, I'll have the jersey. That's fixing. But it's actually, in cycling, it's normal. Yeah. And in fact, deemed to be, if you didn't do it, you'd be criticized. What's the difference between that and, and paying the guy? The difference is money. Yeah. So is that, I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking out loud, is that is that what makes it uh, legal or acceptable? Is that in one of them, it's an exchange of glory and virtue, and the other one, it's an exchange of cash. The same guy I mentioned earlier, Dan, really has shown that the further removed you are from the money, the easier it is to cheat. It's more more allowable. So he, he uses this to say that in, in stock markets, people are not trading money. They're trading shares or derivatives and so forth. So therefore, it's easier for them to cheat because they don't literally have they to exchange money. money. Yeah, yeah. So when Vinokurov says he has 150,000, that really rubs people up badly. If he'd said, have the win, it's worth 150,000, people wouldn't question it. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, I don't know. I mean, to me, it's a really interesting thing. Cycling is so unusual. It's, it's, it's this beguiling mix of ethics and dishonesty. Yeah. Because if the guy in their leader's jersey crashes, everyone must wait. Yeah. And if you don't, remember there have been cases where you, people have attacked shortly after a puncture. Yeah. All hell breaks loose and sportsmen. But meantime, they're all doping to try and beat <laughs> one another. So it's just weird how some things are normal and some things are not. I mean, there are some cases. I mean, there was the story of Lance Armstrong back in the late 80s, early 90s, where in the early part of his career, and uh, he was competing in a series of races in the States. And he won the first two. And if he'd won the third one, he was standing to win a million dollars, which at that time was an enormous amount of money. And the, there was only two teams, if I remember right, who were able to beat him. And what they found out is that his team essentially paid off the other two teams to ensure that he won. Uh, that, that to me is, there's no gray line there. That is just cheating and, in fact, borders on fraud in many ways, isn't it? It shows Lance's character from a very early on in his cycling career in many ways. Yeah, I mean, that's fixing it before the start. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that's There's the no difference. There's no gray line there, really. Maybe that's the difference. Maybe the situation evolves on the road. It's a 200-kilometer stage, and at 195 Ks, the two blokes realize that actually there's a little exchange here that's beneficial for everyone. You yeah. take the stage when I'll take the jersey. Yeah. It's not like that was decided at the start line. So maybe that's the difference. Maybe it's the money, direct, tangible benefit or payoff as opposed to the intangible and so forth. But yeah, this is where this is where we want lines, but there are no lines because it's yeah. because it's more to do with ethics, um, gamesmanship, as it were. So yeah, it's uh, interesting. interesting. Where, where does I mean the, the the interesting marker as as we've discussed throughout this podcast and in the build to this podcast is where gamesmanship is not cheating and so we talked about gamesmanship being against the spirit of the sport but in a professional era that is something that happens a lot and for example Serena Williams competing in the US Open I think 2018 competing against Naomi Osaka loses her cool totally and um, 
a lot of accusations thrown about the fact that she was deliberately trying to put Naomi Osaka off her game at the time. Is that just gamesmanship or is that cheating? I'm th- throwing a moral question at a scientist. In that scenario, <laughs> in that scenario she's, she's cheating to get the violation because yeah. she's being coached from the box. So that's again, that's written in the regs of tennis. Yeah. You cannot be coached by someone sitting in the stand. So the umpire is correctly, in my opinion, giving her first warning, second warning, point deductions and so on. Then her reaction is either one of just unregulated emotion. She feels so indignant or entitled, whatever you, you pick your pick your word, that she can't constrain herself or she is using it opportunistically to try and change the tempo of the match because she wasn't. She wasn't in a good place in the match scenario at that moment either. Yeah. If she's winning that match 6-3-5-1, she's not going to kick up a fuss. But she's facing losing. She's Again, that's not to say that she's then deliberately cheating, but it, it might be. So I don't know. I can't read her mind. I'm not yeah. sure whether she's but that does happen. calculating I mean, throwing... enough. Yeah. But for sure that happens. I mean... It might have been John McEnroe would sometimes say that he would just look for an opportunity to lose it because he knows that it would affect the other guy. Is the screaming and grunting only for myself when when players like when Sharapova screams when she hits a slice? I mean, yeah. Okay, I can I'll take your word for it because you're better at tennis than me. That when you hit a massive backhand down the line, you have to scream or grunt. Fine. Yeah. I still don't think you do, but okay. But when you hit a drop shot, you want to tell me you got to scream? Yeah. No. And they do. And do you think that puts off the players? So that, that's a kind of gamesmanship thing. Yeah, I mean, obviously in that situation, they're trying to disguise. Because <laughs> if, <laughs> if I stop screaming, like now my players, my opponent's going to anticipate that I'm not hitting it hard. So you have to kind of scream anyway. But you don't need to do it. So therefore, you're choosing to yeah. do something. So yeah, for me, that's gamesmanship. What about Nadal's long service? <laughs> well, that's against the rules. Yeah. So like there's a there's a rule that says 25 seconds. But he gets away with a lot more than that, he? gets away with it a lot because maybe he's Nadal. You know, Djokovic, similarly, Djokovic will bounce the ball 30 times sometimes. Yeah. I actually went to make a cup of coffee the other day and got back and he still hadn't served. And I bet you, I would guarantee you that the number of bounces is proportional to the importance of the point. And he will say, and so will Nadal, that for the big points you have to be composed, you've got to get your mind right. And that's true. But there comes a point at which actually you you – you're stalling for time. and mm. So is that gamesmanship? I don't know. It's annoying for sure. And, and it's against the spirit of the game in many yeah, ways. Yeah, and it, yeah. But there, I mean, they've drawn a line. So you, you stop being against the spirit and you start being against the rules. Yeah. Because uh, when the line says 25 seconds, and then they put a shot clock in. Yeah. So now it's literally tangible. It's so transparent. The shot clock expires. You haven't gotten to position. But it's not enforced. So what they do now is... It would be, I reckon, if the guy's still five meters behind the baseline wiping sweat off his head after every single point, which is also mm. ridiculous. Um, but nowadays what happens is you'll see they rush to get to the line and then they take their time. So where before where before they take 10 seconds extra to get back into position, they now get into position and then stall because yeah. that's when the shot clock ends. So they find ways around it. I mean, that's, that's, that's the nature of sport. Yeah. We spoke... You can talk about any law change, anything that's ever introduced. The first thing is that the top people will think, how can we bypass it? Yeah. Yeah. And that's professional sport in many ways, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Any other examples of, I mean, this is, oh, the, the gamesmanship yeah. is like, is an interesting one because 
there's a part of me that that kind of supports it because the the game, even if I'm having a tennis game against you, there'll be some element of gamesmanship because it's not just about whether you can hit the ball. It's about the psychological effect that you can have on somebody else. I I love, I love a great story about if you're riding or running with somebody that's uh, trying to be a bit faster and you're half wheeling you, you ask them about an injury they once had and said, how's that knee feeling? And that's kind of gamesmanship at the very basic level where you're putting a little seed of doubt into the person that you're running or cycling with to suggest that, Maybe they shouldn't be as feeling as strong as they are, but it, it is. There is some evidence to suggest that that is just that is just part of the game. Yeah, and things like that for me that pass the feels test. I don't. Yeah, there's no objective standard no. against which you can evaluate these. Wasn't there a famous case of? It might have been Emil Zatopek going to someone in the marathon saying, "How's the pace?" And the guy yeah. said, "No, it's good," and or, or he said, "No, it's a bit slow," but they were running like world record pace. Yeah. The guy cracked soon after. Yeah. So this happens. Yeah. A lot of these are like apocalyptic stories and so forth. Yeah. They get told after the fact with the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. So they become folklore. Um, the best story is, com- uh, is the Comrades Marathon uh, legend Bruce Fordyce, nine-time winner of the race. And uh, he's famous for as he's going down to one of the wins he had, he catches the guy with about 15 Ks to go, Bob Delamotte, and shakes his hand. And he says, you're looking good. And then just goes past him, and it was yeah, that's a classic bit of gamesmanship because he's saying you're looking good, you're you're going well, but I'm better than you, yeah. and that is gamesmanship. There's nothing really wrong with that. Other gamesmanship is excessive appealing in cricket. Yeah, sledging, yeah let's talk about sledging. Sledging yeah. in cricket is another one. I mean, so the excessive appealing, but is just really to like build pressure on the batsman. And you would watch sometimes sessions in cricket where every single ball. Yeah. looks like a dramatic Shakespearean play because everyone carries on as though like it's life or death, you know? And all they're trying to do is like disrupt the batsman's concentration. Nearly got you that time and so forth. And then one step, I guess, further on from that is is what's called sledging. And I don't know whether this exists for our, our American listeners. I'm sure the English listeners will know what it is. But it's basically I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chirp you and chat and talk to you and try and put you off your mental game by either making fun of you or insulting you or <laughs> cleverly disrupting your normal concentration and so forth. So that's... i tell you, just as an aside, if you look up best sledging quotes, there are some absolute pearlers out there, but, and they're pretty funny, some of them, to be honest. I mean, there are some classic sledging quotes about the way people are seriously abusive against the batsman because it is a way of putting them off their game. Yeah, and I think it's a gateway to what became eventually much nastier stuff. Yeah. And that was where... When the Steve Smith ball tampering thing happened, it invited a lot of criticism of the general culture in Australia. And part of that was criticizing how aggressively the Australians would sledge. It was very much a strategy that they used. And that's where it goes from being gamesmanship to actually being unpleasant. Mm. It's still not against the rules, but it's just extremely distasteful when you look at some of the stuff that they did. I mean, some of the English players at, the po- at that point came out. I remember Mo and Ali, I think it was. And there was some, I mean, it's hard not to say there were there were racist comments that yeah. were being made to try and affect him. So they wanted to get under your skin. They wanted to they wanted to mess up your mental state and your emotional state as much as possible. And it gets unpleasant. Yeah. I've got no issue with some good funny chirps, you know. I've got yeah. no issue with saying something, you know, the wicked keeper or the bowler to put an idea in the batsman's mind, you know. Um you know, he's got to look out for the short ball now. Now he's thinking. So you're trying to change the way that he thinks. But, yeah, it got it got nasty. Yeah. I mean, it must happen in baseball, I'd imagine. 
Yeah, that sort of thing. Must do, must yeah. do. Any, it must happen in all sports. I mean, yeah. I don't know what's going on in the front row before a scrum in rugby. We're going to find out soon because um, we have an interview with Nick Mallett yeah, soon. <laughs> we hope, we hope we can get that. Um, in football at a corner, when there's a penalty, I mean, look what the goalkeeper does. He'll go and stamp his studs against one post. Is he trying to tell the player which way? It's all bluff, double bluff, and that's fine. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's that's clearly not cheating. It's all just part of like trying to nudge your way to a little advantage over the other guy. Let's talk about you've you've come up with a set of rules um, as we pull towards this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we can just end with that um, and take some of the lessons from this podcast. Yeah, um, if we're going to end with that, just a couple. We've got like as usual some great feedback on Twitter. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, obviously, we're recording this now a week or two before this comes out, so you will all have to wait. Well, you will all have waited to hear if your if your suggestion made it. Um, lots of people mentioned Bloodgate, the Harlequins Leinster scandal, because it was such a premeditated, sneaky, and for me the lesson there was how they try to throw one guy, one sacrificial lamb. Yeah. And, and bury the truth for the sake of the institution. So that was an interesting one. New England Patriots says high field boxing. Remember they deflated the football of their opponents in American football uh, <laughs> because it would make it more difficult for the quarterback to and so forth to. Or was it their own one? Ah, and that, so that, that was, was called deflate gate because <laughs> it's always a gate. Uh, and the other the other really interesting one, which I think happens a lot, is they film their opponents' practice sessions. So so teams practice in theory behind closed doors. So that they can't have their move seen, and New England, used, well, sent guys to film their opponents before one of the Super Bowls. Wow. Uh, that same thing happened last year in football for Leeds United. Coach was Marcelo Biesla, and that was brought to our attention by. If you give me a second, I'll tell That's you. That's a good one, that actually. Uh, Martin, also New Age Boxing UK, he sent his spies for Leeds United to check on his opponents, Derby County, when he was confronted about it, and this was interesting. When he was confronted about it, he called a press conference and he gave a PowerPoint presentation showing all the spying he'd done that season. Because culturally for him, having come from Spain and where he was from, this was actually normal behavior. Whereas in England, it was thought to be way over the line. So the cultural difference in cheating is quite an interesting thing. We, yeah. we sort of touched on it a little bit, but, but what's normal in one context is not normal in another. And what's normal to one culture is often not normal to another one. And that's, I think a lot of the misunderstandings about the use of medication, for instance, by Russian athletes, meldonium, was because this was not deemed doping. It was deemed medicine for health. And the fact that it benefits performance is no big deal. Yeah. Whereas in some culture, some areas, this would be a big issue. Uh, yeah, loads more bloodgate. Darren raised that same one. Uh, Giles Quinn's bloodgate and doping. He says, a genius <laughs> idea with the laughing face. Um wasn't so genius when the guy got three years back. What's interesting about that actually is that there, there was obviously intent on the side of the of the team because they had these blood vials. Yeah, so the guy had gone and bought, and, and that wasn't the first is, time. Is that the only it, reason the why they would have those blood vials? Yes, there's, I mean, why there's else? no other I mean, reason. Unless it's Halloween and you're going to go and yeah. scare your neighbors. Um, but they couldn't have preempted that situation. That's what I find odd. Well, they couldn't have preempted they, that situation. No, they or, could because so at the, remember at the time you could have a temporary substitution for blood. So, right. so normal, a normal injury, a hamstring, a knee, the guy's coming off and right. he's not able to ever go back on. But for blood, you could get the guy off and put someone else on while you treated the blood injury okay. because it's a blood thing. So there was more. absolute intent. So they knew that 
at some point, and they've done it before. So in the in the hearings, it emerged that they'd done it at least four times. Was was acknowledged? Yeah. Um, because it allowed you an extra substitution. So, and it's the same thing now for head injuries. So earlier, I forget who it was. Apologies, but he said Slimani Gate. That was a French prop playing in a match against Wales in the Six Nations, where they they simulated. Well, they were accused of faking a head injury because the same thing is true. If you've got a head injury or suspected concussion, you can go off and someone else come back on. Mm. Because if you didn't, they'd hide concussions, yeah. right? And you don't want that. So, so the same thing is in place. So they, they premeditated it. They bought this blood capsule from a joke shop in Clapham, as I mentioned, and they, they went out there deliberately to, to do it. So that's, yeah, so if this was a vote, that would by far be the, the most popular be, one. Be the most popular one. Um, McLaren Formula One team, says David Stebbins. Glenn Cottingly, Alex Rodriguez, surely the richest doper out there. This is an interesting thing. So Formula 1 one has been basically there, the one teammate, I can't remember who it was now, it was Hamilton and one other, I think, where they where he let they let, had to let Hamilton win. So team orders made sure Hamilton win so he could win the world championships. That's, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's that's yeah. that's the same circumstances in cycling. It's yeah, team orders. Absolutely. Give your teammate the win. Yeah, massively controversial because they were they weren't shy right. to say that. That's what they did. And the thing is, there is like, who's who are they cheating there? They're cheating. Well, they're working as a team, supposedly, when right. they're not supposed to. So they're not actually cheating them. Their justification is, I'm not cheating myself. I'm yeah. cheating my second driver out of a win. Yeah. But I'm paying him millions. He must listen. Yeah. You know, that's but like they're also not performing at their best. When they could have won, they should have won. So the reason it's controversial is they're cheating the fans out of a legitimate yeah. result. Yeah. So it undermines the integrity of the result. But they'll say that we are in a team sport and that's, if we're cheating anyone, we're cheating ourselves. So, or, or one of our own. And that, he doesn't mind. He does, but he's not going to say anything because yeah. he's got millions of dollars <laughs> hanging on it. Um, Alex Rodriguez, baseball player, surely the richest doper. This is an interesting thing because some dopers get ostracized and kicked out and end up with nothing. Other dopers make a fortune, and even after they get exposed as dopers, they end up as TV pundits, media celebrities, and so forth. This year in the Tour de France, much of the English media coverage is provided by former dopers, but they wouldn't <laughs> invite some others. So Jan Ulrich, for instance, is persona non grata. Other people are giving interviews on the finish line. Yeah. So what's the difference? So, so this interesting thing there is it's not it's not the cheating that seems to be the decider. Um, some other comments, uh, loads of blood blood go. Spanish basketball, nineteen ninety two Paralympics. Yeah. Uh, back then they had a disability category. Well, I'm going to ask you a good story about this now. Spain yeah. wins the basketball category for disabled athletes in the Paralympics. It subsequently emerges that most of that team was not intellectually disabled. Yeah. So that was a really famous one. I remember it was a became a South Park episode where, <laughs> where Eric Cartman entered the Paralympics and couldn't win anything. But the yeah, I mean that's unbelievable that you would enter a team of intellectually fully abled people to win a Paralympic gold medal against us. That, that's they stopped disabled sport in the Paralympics in well, large part for that reason. One of the stories you were telling us before the podcast involves the, the Paralympic um, teams and how these. That there's illegal stuff happening at that level. Yeah, so there's loads. I mean, so in the Paralympics, there's, there's the biggest challenge is classification. Yeah. Because you're effectively trying to protect people who are more disabled than others. Yeah. So in cerebral palsy, for instance, there are f there are three or four categories for running cerebral palsy: T36, 37, 38. It may go down to 35 as well. So 
when 38 you, being the most able. 38 is the least affected by yeah. CP. So they are the fastest. So when you look at the world records, it's five or six seconds faster than the T37. But now someone at some point has to put you into T37 as opposed to T38 based on how severely affected you are. And that is as much as they'd like it to be objective, it's not. And so it creates opportunities to game the system. So, and I, I had this, I remember 10 years ago, I was coaching more than that, 12 years ago, I was coaching an athlete in the T38 category, ended up winning gold in Beijing in the eight and silver in the four. And he had a young friend, 16 year old kid, who'd been classified as a T38, which made him too slow to go to the Olympics. Had he been a T37, he would have gone to the Olympics. And yeah. he was he was desperately, desperately keen to get reclassified as a T37. And I felt so sorry for him because it was really his dream and it was basically the only thing he was motivated by, go yeah. to the Olympics. And all he needed was someone to reclassify him. And they asked me if I could do it. I, I, I'm not a classifier, so I couldn't. Wouldn't know how to, yeah. to cheat that. But at the last Paralympics, it and he emerged. wouldn't have done it anyway if he did. No, no, I would no. just to clarify that. No, of course, of course. <laughs> um, but I tell you, look, the temptation is enormous because you yeah. think the guy's gonna like this is his life's ambition. It might be the most important thing he's ever gonna have in his life. He's not gonna go there and win. He just wants to be on the plane. What's the harm? You know, that's the kind of thing that was going through my head. I, yeah. It was it was desperately sad actually to say to this guy, "I'm sorry, but the system exists and." But that's not going to stop a lot of people. And so in 2016 in Rio, there were massive allegations of classification cheating yeah. where people would deliberately classify one level down. And then the other method of cheating in the Paralympics is something called boosting, which is quite common in, in quadriplegia. So these are people who've got spinal injuries, which means they can't really feel sensations, for example, below the trunk or below the below, even below the neck. And what they will do is, in an attempt to get an extra sympathetic adrenaline burst, you know, trigger the old fight or flight system, they will deliberately hurt themselves before they compete because they get something called autonomic dysreflexia, which is a fancy name for saying you get this massive spike in sympathetic activity. And the, the, the lengths to which they go is they will literally break their bones in their feet oh. or something or in their hands, or they will put pins into their testicles, or they will squeeze their testicles before they go out and compete because they don't get the pain response, yeah. but they get the autonomic sympathetic nervous system yeah. response. And it causes their blood flow, their blood pressure to spike. It's extremely dangerous. I was going to say, how do, they, be, how do they counteract that? It can be lethal. So the Paralympics has this policy where they, if they see someone sweating or looking like they've had this <laughs> autonomic response, they can test them. And they used to have a limit at 180 millimeters of mercury blood pressure. And if you're above that, they'd take you out the race before oh, you started okay. it. They lowered that to 160 because they were so concerned about this practice. But it goes to show you, like, this is the Paralympics. This is not this is not a million-dollar contract from Nike on the line and so forth. It's just your life's work yeah, and your purpose, your meaning in life. And you will literally hurt yourself, okay, it's not painful to you, yeah, to get there. So the lengths that people will go to to cheat is is dramatic. Um, and then one last one, I guess, before you wrap us up, a lot of people have brought this up. This is a serious issue and it's a, it's a complex issue. People have written in to say men entering women's events and then winning them and saying that they are women. Yeah. Now the way I've said that sounds flippant. So that's not actually what's happening. This is not you or me going to run in a woman's race. This is the transgender male to female issue. And at what point, 
can sports ensure that there's fairness for someone who identifies as female, even though they are biologically male? And they've obviously got policies in place to lower testosterone levels for 12 months and so forth. There's a strong argument that that's not enough. And so women, many women, are saying that it is cheating for a biological male to enter women's sports. Now, that's a whole podcast. That's going to be a big, big story in 2020, and we'll get into the science of all of it, maybe. We touched on it, it a it bit happens. on episode two of our podcast. Yeah, we did. I mean, one of the very first issues we ever dealt with was this battle of the sexes. Why are men and women separated? For fairness. Yeah. And so in theory, it's true. A biological male who comes across to compete in women's sport is gaining an unfair advantage. Sport is trying to find a compromise, but it's hugely messy. And it's, uh, it, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a big deal in yeah. the future. Yeah. Let's talk about your seven principles of cheating yes. in sport and getting away with it. Just to wrap things so up. So this is a summary. Number one. <laughs> I know you've worked pretty hard at this. Yeah. Number one, never take a test. You won't pass. Right. So that's the first thing. If you're cheating and you get asked into a situation that will expose it, run away. <laughs> Hide. And if you're a good athlete, you should be able to run away. Yes. Hide. <laughs> Unless, depends what athlete. Number two, have money because you'll win on both sides of the cheating equation. Number one, you'll be able to cheat more efficiently and effectively. And number two, if you're caught, you'll have the money to pay expensive lawyers, commission very expensive computer simulations with dogs, and bury the system in complexity. Okay, so that's me out then. Number three, have friends in high places. If history has shown anything, is that the people who are connected can cheat, whereas the people who are not will be sacrificed. So this refers to governance, organization, even media. If you can control the narrative in the media, and you were in the media, so you know how important this might be, you got to create contacts that will then change the narrative for you. On that point, number four, own the narrative. If you're a middle-aged athlete in the middle sort of period of your career and you've never been anything spectacular before and you suddenly become a world beater, that is more suspicious to me than a failed test. Yeah, I honestly think that anti-doping is less sensitive than performance transformations in terms of identifying dopers. Yeah. So you have to own the narrative. You have to find plausible ways to explain that improvement. So if you're going to cheat, prepare the community for how, why you are suddenly good at it. Yeah. You know, you've got to, you've got to lay the foundation. You've almost got to believe your own story. I suppose many of these narratives that get thrown out are people actually believing in their own story. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So what are those narratives? Diet, I lost weight. Yeah. I just took my training seriously for the first time in my life. You've got to plant the idea that there's a good reason for why you weren't so good before and why you are so good now. Write books explaining your methods, biographies and autobiographies to create compelling storylines. That's all in the narrative. That's a lot of effort. Number five, have asthma <laughs> <laughs> or be vulnerable to infections and have a compliant doctor. TUEs, we spoke about this before, TUEs is the the new advancement in doping. So you just have a good doctor and enough medical conditions to get away with it. Number six, attack and preferably with aggression anyone who accuses you. Yeah. They're unlikely to have as much money as you do or the desire to fight, so they'll go away. Lance Armstrong method. Right. And then number seven, semi-tongue-in-cheek. Do not be Chinese, Russian, Kenyan, Turkish, Spanish, or Italian, but make sure that you are British or English speaking so that you can control the narrative and rely on 
a general cultural perception that the other side cheats and we don't. (laughs) (laughs) Professor Rostaker, that is absolutely a brilliant summary. We hope that you don't take uh, most of that too seriously. And thank you for those that uh, had us back on Twitter with some of your ideas. It's lovely to hear some ideas that we hadn't thought about. And uh, let us know what you think about this podcast, Um, you know, with there's other instances of this. We don't advise people to cheat, but Ross, um, it, it has been a fascinating last hour and 20 minutes of just talking about this amazing world where sport, you know, for many of us is a, is a fan-based sport. We participate in ourselves. We can't see ourselves necessarily cheating, but it is something that we have to accept. We have to accept gamesmanship. We have to accept that there will be fraud, and this won't end today or didn't end with Lance Armstrong or anybody yeah. else. It's going to be part of sport for years. Yeah, think about when you're watching your team or your athletes and you think, that guy's got to do everything it takes to win. If he loses, I'm going to criticize him. I'm going to say he should have done more. He's expected to go out and be the best that he possibly can be, but not that good. Yeah. And if he takes <laughs> if he takes steps that take him across whatever line we've set, wherever you might set that, now he's now he's in the wrong. And that when you have that mindset towards sport, then cheating is the inevitable consequence of it. So the societal line and the the moral code that stops cheating is is the movable target, as it were. And yeah. when, when people see cheats, they should not be surprised because it's human nature. It's just you and I cheat when the stakes are really low. They yeah. cheat in a public place when it's really high. Just reminded myself, I need to go and delete a ride off Strava I did two weeks ago. <laughs> Professor Rostaker, thank you much for your time and uh, we look forward to seeing you in our next episode. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.